Take your Bibles this morning. Let's go to Genesis chapter 6. We started this chapter last week, and I began by taking some time to give my opinion on who I believe the sons of God are who came unto the daughters of men. I'm not going to recap all that. Aren't you glad? (laughs) Except to say that my personal opinion is the sons of God are not the fallen angels. Um, One thing I will add, though, since I thought we were going to get to it today, and surprise, we're not going to get further than I thought. But when people consider that they might be fallen angels, they cite verse 9 here in Genesis 6 about Noah being perfect in his generations. And so he was the only one left who was not corrupted, supposedly, by this intermixing of fallen angels and human women. But just a thought, if all outside of Noah's outside of Noah were corrupted, then who did he marry and who did his sons marry? Well, they might have married sisters. That would have been the only option. Still wasn't forbidden by the law, but just a thought there. All opinions aside, the the closing thought last week was how we are told the sons of God took them, wives of all which they choose. And that's the problem. We see with our eyes and we take what we want without necessarily going to God. They took what they chose. They were led by sight. And the godly married the ungodly, and this corrupted the home, which corrupted society. God doesn't want His children unequally yoked with unbelievers. And so it is never God's will for an unbeliever to marry, or a believer to marry an unbeliever. That's not God's will for your life. But it does happen. And if that's you, then according to 1 Corinthians 7, it is now God's will for you to do all you can to remain married. Not only are unequally yoked marriages against your heavenly Father's plan for your life, but if you go down that path, then it will be a trouble to your earthly parents. If they're believers. When Abraham sent his servant to find a wife, For his son Isaac, (laughs) can you imagine if you sent a servant to go find a wife for your son? That better be a good servant, amen. Anyway, he made him swear that he would not take a wife for his sons from among the daughters of the Canaanites. Esau took wives from among the Hittites. Remember that? We'll see that in Genesis 26, 35 in about six years when we get there. And it says, they were a grief of mind unto Isaac and Rebekah. And Rebekah later said to Isaac in Genesis twenty-seven forty-six, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth, which is the same as the Hittites. If Jacob take a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these which are of the daughters of the land, what good shall my life do me? God wants His children marrying believers. Because according to Malachi 2.5, God desires a godly seed to raise up another godly generation. And it is an observable fact that as the family has gone, the church has gone, and as the church has gone, so has society gone. And as society goes, our nation will go. And, And we're seeing that today. We can observe that. It should be undeniable to you that this is true. This issue is such a big deal that these unholy unions were the source of extensive corruption. 
it got so bad that in verse 5, God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Bible ties that back to the home. And I closed last week with how God wasn't going to overlook their compromise. The Lord said in verse 7, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. Both man and beast, the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. And just like in Genesis 6, so we too today are headed towards judgment once again. Our Lord told us that as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the coming of the Son of Man. And I hope you're prepared for the Lord's appearing. I hope you have placed your faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation because that's all that will do in that day. Let's begin today by reading verses 1 through 7 again this week of Genesis chapter 6. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also flesh. Yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. The Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. So while we were in these verses last week, there's a couple things that I didn't get a chance to get to that I'd like to cover this morning. Some of this will be very boring for you to begin with. Stay with me. All right. One is found in verse 3 where the Lord says, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. The other uh, thing I want to cover is in verses 6 and 7. In verse 6 we read, And it repenteth the Lord that he hath made man on the earth. And in verse 7 we read, For it repenteth me that I have made them. And so I want to start with that thought and work our way back to verse 3. This verbiage of the Lord repenting, what, what, what is this? Many say this is what's called anthropopathism. Something like that. Anthropopathism, which is where human feelings are ascribed to something not human. Look, as I was studying this, I, I was struck by how smart I'm getting just studying Genesis. How many words... It's so many words that I've learned, I can't even remember what they are already. <laughs> so you're probably not going to remember any of that. Um, anyway, it is said human feelings are ascribed to God in the Bible in order for our finite minds to try to comprehend our infinite God, better grasp how He operates by using language better suited to us, uh, to our nature and our experience. Uh, another similar occurrence is what is called anthropomorphism, which is <laughs> this is the attribution of physical human properties to God, such as eyes, ears, hands, arms, nose, etc. And we even see this with some animal properties in the Bible. For example, the Bible talks about hiding under the wings of God. 
And, and so th- that might be some of that here as far as trying to help us understand what it means when it says God re- repents. But when reading how God repented here in Genesis 6, it's, it's interesting because there are passages in the Bible that tell us God does not repent. Uh-oh. Is, is this a contradiction? Numbers 23.19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? 1 Samuel 15.11, the Lord says to Samuel, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be a king. But then in verse 29 of the same chapter we read, And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent. (laughs) For he is not a man that he should repent. This is when you ought to be glad you're not the one up here trying to explain all this. And I could have just dodged the issue altogether. There's a lot of passages I could cite, but what gives here? How can God repent in Genesis 6, but in Numbers 23, 19, it tells us God does not repent. How can God say He repents and then doesn't repent in 1 Samuel 15 within about 28 verses, 18 verses? Disclaimer. I do not take the time to address this in an attempt to convince those who want to argue about it. There are those who want to find fault with Scripture. That's not the intent. I believe that would be a discussion for another group of people. This is not an apologetic. That would take a much deeper dive. But I'm taking the time in an effort to help any who may genuinely be wondering, well, I thought God said He can't repent, and now He's saying He's repenting. Um, I may not satisfy your curiosity, but I'll give it my best, which may be of no value. <laughs> One of the problems I see is people assume every word translated into English as repent all mean the same thing. But this isn't the case. Um, and also, you cannot take an Old and New Testament word and use it interchangeably because it's not always the same meaning. Repent is one of those words. Uh, not to mention there are differences with those words even within the same testament. This is where some of you are going to fall asleep. It's okay. I'm giving you a free pass to sleep. I'm going to wake you up once we get to the preaching point, okay? For example, most frequent use of repent in our New Testament is the Greek word, which means to think differently or to change your mind. It's, it's metanoia. Matthew 4, 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You need to change your thinking about the Messiah because He's not going to satisfy what you thought He was going to do. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is going down now, Jesus is saying. And then there are a couple of words translated repent from the Greek which has to do more with our emotions such as feelings of regret and sorrow and guilt. 2 Corinthians 7 eight. get this. Paul said, For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. When the Corinthians read Paul's letter, they were feeling sorry. That's good. I think. They were in heaviness. They were grieved. And Paul said at first, I do not repent. Or he's saying, I don't regret writing the letter. Then he immediately follows that up with, though I did repent. And so he's saying, at first I was feeling a little bad because I made you sorrow, but that wasn't really my intent. And so Paul isn't saying, I don't change my thinking, though I did change my thinking. No, the letter was written under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. 
Amen. That letter was necessary to correct issues of the church. It was necessary for the care of the church. So he's speaking in relation to his emotions as it related to their emotions. Am I making sense so far? This is why we read of Judas Iscariot after he betrayed Christ that he repented himself. Well, did he, did he have a change of heart? You know, did he, did he get right with God? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But rather it affected his emotions. When we go to the Old Testament, we find similar usages. For example, in Ezekiel 14.6 and 18.30, God encourages the house of Israel to repent and turn. In essence, God is saying, change your thinking and turn back to me. Likewise, 1 Kings 8, 47 and 48 says, Yet if they shall bethink themselves, it's the same Hebrew word for repent, if, if they bethink themselves in the land whither they were carried captives and repent and make supplication unto thee in the land of them that carried them captives, saying, We, we have sinned and done perversely. We have committed wickedness and so return unto thee with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies. And so bethink, repent, return, they're all Hebrew words for repent, or for repent, some slight variation. If they would change their thinking about their sin and their wickedness, and listen, and they would agree with God, if you'll bethink yourselves, if you'll repent, if you'll realize that you need to change the way you think about your sin, if you'll do that, then it would lead to them in a change of direction, and they would repent that way because they would turn to the Lord. But in most places, as it is here in Genesis 6, and everywhere as it relates to God, I think that's important, the Hebrew word for repent deals with the emotions. Okay, A good example of, of both the thinking and emotions is found in, in Exodus 13, 17. And it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God led them through the way of the land of the Philistines, although, or excuse me, God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest peradventure the people repent when they see war and they return, the other Hebrew word for repent, and they return to Egypt. So both Hebrew words are used there. Obviously one is, is the word repent, when God said lest peradventure the people repent, or they see this and they get affected in their emotions, which would lead them to repent or to return to Egypt. In other words, their emotions would cause them to change their thinking and they would turn. They would turn back to Egypt in this case. Another good example is Job 42.6 where we read Job saying, Wherefore I abhor myself, the emotions, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. There's a connection between a lot of these with your emotions and the word repent. Now let's try to tie that understanding to Genesis chapter 6. Notice verse 6 again here. And it repented the Lord that He had made man on the earth. And what does it say next? And it grieved Him in His heart. There's a connection again between emotions and God repenting. God is not wishing that He would have never created mankind. Or else why keep Noah and his family alive? If He could take Enoch home without him dying, He could certainly just take Noah out and then destroy the rest of, of mankind. 
Not to mention God still had to fulfill His promises from Genesis 3.15, that the promise seed would arrive. And we know from Jude that Enoch was preaching about the Lord's return, His second coming. And so all that still had to be fulfilled or else God would be a liar. And so for God to be true to mankind, mankind had to continue. Does that make sense? But we see that God's repentance here, it is tied to His emotions. It says that He was grieved at His heart. God is not changing His thinking about having created mankind. Our Lord does not change His purposes. Malachi 3.6, For I am the Lord, I change not. James 1.17 tells us of God, with whom is no variable variableness, neither shadow of turning. Job 23.13 says, But He is of one mind, and who can turn Him? But God can have a change of emotions. And He can repent without altering His character, or changing His nature, or changing His thinking. A good example is found in Jeremiah 18. Listen to these two passages. Jeremiah 18.8 If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil... I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. And then in verse 10 of that same chapter, If it do evil in my sight that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. And so in verse 8 there, if there is a turn uh, from evil or repentance, they agree with God about their sinfulness, then God will repent, which is the other word, in the Hebrew for repent. God's anger will be changed to graciousness. Do you see the difference? On the other hand, in verse 10, if that nation refuses to repent and refuses to agree with God about their sin and they continue to commit evil, then God will withhold His graciousness and He will exercise His anger against them. Both are part of who God is. God is merciful. God is gracious. But God is also wrath and judgment. I want you to understand that the direction God takes, and this is where I ultimately wanted to go with this, the direction that God takes is dependent upon man. In reality, you see, it isn't God who changes, but it is man who changes His direction. Jeremiah 26, 13, Therefore now, listen to what God says, amend your ways and your doings, and obey the voice of the Lord your God, and the Lord will repent him of the evil that he hath pronounced against you. Ezekiel 24, 14. I, the Lord, have spoken it. It shall come to pass, and I will do it. I will not go back, neither will I spare, neither will I repent according to thy ways, and according to thy doings shall they judge thee, saith the Lord God. So God, He stays within the boundaries of who He is. All right, God, He never deviates. So never, never confuse God repenting with a change in His nature. It, it, that doesn't happen with God. If God changes His emotion, then He will do that within the boundaries of His unchangeable nature. And so in our text... God is not the one changing. It is man who has corrupted themselves. You got that? Our decisions cause God 
to have to act in a way that is consistent with His holy character. Here in Genesis chapter 6, God is about to alter His way of being merciful and long-suffering to being a God of judgment. But God didn't change. Man did. Having filled up the measure of their iniquities, God is about to exercise His justice. So God isn't being regretful here that He created mankind. His purpose is still going to be the same, but this does show how God is changing His action or repenting as it were. I like how Matthew Henry put it in in his commentary, quote, When God made man upright, He rested and was refreshed. We find that in Exodus 31.17. And His way towards Him was such as showed He was pleased with the work of His own hands. But now that man has apostatized, he could not do otherwise than show himself displeased, so that the change was in man, not in God. Are you catching that? God made man, it was very good. He rested. He was at peace with the whole thing. But man messed it up, and now God has to change his way and say, no, I can't let this go. And now God has got to exercise His judgment. And so I would just add to that that God, had to, God has to do this in Genesis 6 in order to be true to His character. He has to bring judgment of some sort. And He can choose how He wants to do that. He chose to do it with a global flood here. But God must deal with sin. And so God is now moving from rest and pleasure into action over His displeasure of man. Well, I hope that helped to some extent. I confused myself as I was studying and okay, whatever. I do the best I can. And um, I probably confused more than I helped. I might have lost some of you. If, if I did, I apologize. Let's tune back in, right? Because what makes sense to me may not really make sense to you. And you might be going, what did you just say? I don't know. But I give these longer explanations because I spend the time studying it because I'm trying to arrive to a conclusion that I'm pleased with. And then I have to regurgitate the boring lecture to you. Okay. All right, back, back on track here. Now, because God is going from being merciful and long-suffering to exercising His judgment and wrath, I want you to notice what He says in verse 3. By, by the way, before I get to verse 3, can I just tell you this? And, and I, for some reason, I skipped over this in my, my notes. I, it's not in my notes. I just, for some reason, forgot when I was studying. But, but look again at the end of verse 6. And it grieved Him at His heart. Can we just pause there for a second and just think about what's happening? Do you understand that our decisions, our sinfulness, it grieves God? What a thought. I think if we get a hold of that, we might have a change of heart of how we think about sin. And and you've heard the old saying, sin never affects just one person. Well, according to this, it also affects God. It grieved him at his heart. That's what our sin does. You say, well, I don't believe that. Listen, it grieved him so much, he said, there's only one way to fix this. I've got to send my son, and he did. And he sent Jesus Christ to die and to bleed because it grieved him at his heart. And he wanted mankind to be forgiven. What a thought. Well, maybe we'll get to that next week, and we'll spend another week in these verses. Amen. Now, notice what God says in verse 3. My spirit shall not always strive with man. 
See, what's happening is God is going from being merciful and long-suffering to now God is saying, it's time for me to judge. And my spirit's not always going to strive with man. And, and, and this is a very sobering thought here. God seeks to draw all men unto Him. He does that through the cross. Jesus said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. And He said that signifying what death He should die, which we know is crucifixion. And so God uses the cross to draw men to Himself, to call all of mankind. God also seeks to draw men uh, through the preaching of His Word, which we're doing now. God was even using preaching before the judgment of His great flood. Jude, I mentioned this earlier, Jude verse 14. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, or preached, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of His saints. There was preaching back there in Enoch's day, and we know in 2 Peter 2.5, Noah is called a preacher of righteousness. God was using preaching before the flood, before His wrath, before destruction, in order to call men to Himself. He wanted them to be saved, right? And so God is still using the preaching of His Word. God is still using the cross of Christ to draw all men unto Him. But listen to me well. If I lost you in all that other stuff, tune me in. God wants to draw you, but He will not force you. Well, I want God to show Himself real. Ask, seek, knock. Isn't that what Jesus said? Everyone who seeks for me shall find me. You say, I want God to show Himself real first. Doesn't work that way. You have got to seek as He is seeking you. God will not force you to be saved. Now, Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. But we know in Jesus' day, not all accepted Him. Only those who would receive Him. And that's how it is today. Our Lord is still seeking out the lost because He wants them to be saved. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But God has given you a free will. You can choose to receive Him or you can choose to reject Him. So God begins to draw, and then we make a decision. Many of you can give the testimony of this in your own life, that when you were saved, it was not the very first time you heard the gospel. Amen? But what happened? God was drawing you, and you made a conscious decision to reject Him. And then at a later time, God began to draw you again. And this process continued until you finally said, Yes, Lord. It continued in His mercy. And eventually you made the decision that, Yes, I want to receive Christ as my Savior. But for many of us, that did not happen the very first time. Many put off that decision. What was happening was God was striving with you. God was desiring for you to be saved. But only God knows how long His Spirit will strive with you. Some of you here are lost. You know you're lost. I know you're lost because you told me you're lost. Some of you here don't know Christ as your Savior. You're on your way to hell. 
And you know that to be true. And, and God is drawing you again today. He draws to the preaching of His Word. And, and God is drawing you right now. That's why you're here. Somebody say amen. amen. Listen, God is in, He's drawing right now. He's trying to get people to, to stop with their pridefulness. But you have another decision to make today, don't you? You can walk out of here lost again, or you can swallow your pride and give yourself to God. Perhaps you may think, well, you know, God is so good, He's going to give me another chance. God's okay if I keep putting off this decision. Maybe you think in God's mercy and His amazing grace, thank God for it, Amen. that He's going to give you this next opportunity. But listen to me, friend, you don't know when that door is going to close. Amen. I have no doubt that our God is good to the children of men. Yeah. I'm a living testimony of that. But you may not have another chance to be saved. Listen, you might die today. Or you can sear your conscience and harden your heart to the point that you will no longer hear the message. Or God may just start, stop striving with you altogether and say, that's enough. It's time for your judgment. God delights in mercy. And He's kind enough to give us the warning and then give us space to repent. This is seen at the end of verse 3 when God says, Yet His days shall be in 120 years. God in His mercy was going to give them another 120 years until He poured out His wrath in the form of a global flood destroying all mankind except for Noah and his family. And they rejected the preaching of Noah. God's being merciful to you today as well. Amen. God is striving with you. He's calling you. He's drawing you. And you know it's true because your conscience bears you witness. And, and we've heard the same testimonies there as well. We, we've heard of those who have said something to this effect. I knew, I knew in that moment if I didn't give my heart to Christ that time that I wasn't going to get another time. Now, what was making them think that? It sure wasn't Satan. Let me borrow from Matthew Henry again. If the Spirit be resisted, quenched, and striven against, though He strive long, He will not always strive. The time of God's patience and forbearance towards provoking sinners is sometimes long, but always limited. Reprieves are not pardons. Though God bear a great while, He will not always bear. End quote. When will that day arrive for you and God's Spirit will no longer strive with you? I don't know. How much longer do you have? How many more opportunities will God give you? No one knows but God. But I know this. God is giving you the warning now to turn unto Him or be destroyed. Adam Clark wrote, Those who willfully resist and grieve that spirit must be ultimately left to the hardness and blindness of their own hearts if they do not repent and turn to God. So listen to me this morning. The day of God's leniency will come to an end. 
and He will no longer withhold His vengeance. And He will execute the sentence of condemnation that is upon you. It's upon all unbelievers. John 3.36, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. You say, what does that mean? Are they going through God's wrath? No, no, no. The sentence abides on them, and one day it will be executed. The, the, wrath, the sentence of God's wrath is abiding upon the lost right now. And one day God is going to execute that sentence upon the unbelieving. Either when you die or when He returns. But the Bible is clear that He will pour out His wrath against the unbelievers. And there's only one way to escape God's wrath. That is by receiving Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You say, well, how is this possible? Because Christ took God's wrath that we were owed when He died on the cross. And if you will place your faith and trust in the finished work of Christ, then God will repent of the evil against you, and God will then be merciful and gracious to you. Why? Because God's anger was satisfied in Christ. When you receive Christ, God's anger towards your wickedness is changed to forgiveness and acceptance. And He embraces you as His dear child. So why would you put Him off any longer? If you sense the Spirit is drawing you today, then give yourself to Him. He promised to abundantly pardon. This very well may be your last opportunity. For His Spirit will not always strive with man. You say, well, I'd be embarrassed that people think I'm saved. And Listen, you got nothing to be embarrassed of in this church. They'll not only be rejoicing in heaven, they'll be rejoicing in this church. If that's you this morning, I want you to come forward in just a moment. Let us show you from the Bible how you can know Christ as your Savior. Let's pray.